The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Angela Stiles. Angela is a former administrator uh, for federal procurement policy, the, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, right, Angela? That's correct. You worked at GSA, too, right? I was for at GSA bit. for a while in hey, the public building service. Hey, a, a fellow alumni. That's right. I, I appreciate that. Um, and Angela is a partner at Bracewell, uh, advising uh, uh, companies on government contracts issues across the board. Um, so, Angela, uh, and we're into a new year, so we can look a little bit back on last year. Um, but first of all, thanks for coming on. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And I know one of your keen areas of interest are OTAs. And yes. I like to think a little bit. I mean, there's a lot going on in 2018. Um, but uh, OTAs really came into the government procurement consciousness last year. Lots of articles about them, lots of energy around them, a lot of action around them. Um, so let's let's talk about those. Um, first of all, what is an OTA? Well, they've actually been around for decades. They're a contract, but they're not a typical FAR-based contract. So uh, the statutes um, at a number of agencies, Department of Defense being, I think, the premier agency for using these, allows uh, the department uh, to execute agreements with companies and not have all of the FAR provisions, not have... Um, statutes governing intellectual property apply. So there are agreements where the Department of Defense, uh, other agencies like DHS, NASA, can actually write the terms and conditions in coordination with the contractors. Uh, They've historically been used for research and development. Uh, However, over time, the Department of Defense uh, and the Hill and companies realize that the department might be able to get better access to companies that were unwilling to accept FAR provisions, cost accounting provisions, if they expanded the use beyond research and development. Uh, A while back, it expanded to prototypes. So you could do the research and development. You could put together a prototype. The government could execute a contract called an OTA, another transaction agreement, uh, with the company to get both the research and development and the prototype. And very recently, it was expanded to also include production under certain circumstances. So if when the department executed an OTA for a production contract, if competitive procedures were used um, and they were very clear in the initial agreement that there might be follow-on production, you could actually move into production, which created some very significant opportunities to reach technology companies that were not otherwise going to do business with the Department of Defense. Right. And I guess, you know, that's an important, that's that, that sort of evolution. The land, it's pretty straightforward, right? And that, you know, and for example, you, when you brought that up, I thought of the Oracle protest yes. and the fact that it was sustained. And it's really because the transaction didn't meet the basic statutory requirements that they are that they weren't completed they hadn't completed the prototype and they hadn't you know articulated the fact that they might do a follow on is that right that's exactly right and so um it was it the last year the beginning of last year 
um, the Department of Defense through DIUX, the Defense Innovation Unit, which at the time was experimental. Now it's just the Defense Innovation Unit, came out and announced almost a billion-dollar contract with a company called Rheem Contracting um, for uh, follow-on production. And multiple agencies were going to use this for follow-on production. Um, and it was so large, I think it was definitely notable. And so that's when uh, Oracle protested and they won. And it's a new, it's, it's a new uh, methodology, right? Actually, follow-on production is new. The department didn't get it quite right. They didn't put into the agreement um, for the original prototype uh, any language that said that there would be there could be a follow-on production contract. And at the time of the protest, Reen hadn't successfully completed the prototype. And so GAO said, no, nope, you didn't follow the statutory requirements here. And Oracle won that protest. Um, I think it actually gave a lot more clear guidance to people on yeah. what other transactions look like. Although there's a lot of vagaries still around them. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no true definition of what a prototype is. There's no true definition. It's in the eye of the beholder, right? Or, it's in uh, the eye of the beholder. Whoever has the money, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. It, I think it can almost be anything you want to define yeah. it to yeah. mean as long as it's not sold in Home Depot. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of flexibility mm-hmm. in the definition of what a prototype is. And what's really interesting is that um, also, to have a follow-on production contract, you have to have had the prototype awarded with competitive procedures. Well, there's also no definition around competitive pre- procedures. There's a, there is some guidance uh, that's come out very recently yeah, from DOD, the Department of Defense. Yeah. Now, was it a thinking result of the protest? It think, was as yeah. a result of the protest, but it actually is excellent guidance because there were many areas that were, I think, quite uncertain and were keeping uh, companies and contractors from doing business. Things like um, they would, if there was a cost sharing in the OTA, the department would say you have to follow the FAR Part 31 rules on cost. Well, it kind of defeats the purpose with a company that's, you know, a technology company that's new to the game that has no idea what that means and couldn't possibly account for their costs in that way. So lots of good guidance in it. Right. You know, that reminds me back in the day just in a simplified like orders under the schedules or just the uh, the guidance we used to don't, don't use FAR-based procedures for the – Task order competition. Now that you're going to be held to those, and what's you know what's the point of it, right? It's an analogous situation. Um, tell me about consortiums and how that works in the OTA you know universe. So a whole different world has really been created around the use of OTAs. A lot of the defense agencies have been going to consortiums and consortium management companies that oftentimes include traditional contractors, non-traditional small businesses, and universities. And what will there's a number of ways that the transaction happens. So sometimes the consortium management company is really just the uh, the person that kind of slices and dices and says, this is what the Army needs here, or this is what the Air Force needs here in a particular area of research or uh, prototyping that they're looking at. Um, some of the consortium management companies actually participate, too, and help in the development of uh, the products or the technology. But there are a lot of them out there. If people are interested in researching it, you can actually go to fpds.gov. You can search for the other transactions, and you can pull up the full list of these consortium management companies. Those oftentimes are the best way to actually get into the business of OTAs. They're going to be essentially the prime with the government, and they're going to have a sub-OTA agreement with the smaller businesses, with the technology companies. But that consortium oftentimes is the entity that has direct access to 
uh, the Department of Defense entity that's looking for the research, development, prototyping, and follow-on production. Wow. You answered all my, my, all my questions on that. Wow, that was, that was excellent. Um, listening to that um, and listening, you, you're referencing small business or technology companies. You know, typically, like the goal is folks who aren't traditionally done business with the government. You know, when you're thinking about one of these agreements and dealing with the government, what, what's your advice to companies? What are the things they need to think about? Well, um, when you're looking at the actual agreement itself, I think the first and most important thing is to always protect your intellectual property. Think of it as a commercial agreement because that's essentially what it is. Think about what you want to protect in terms of your intellectual property and what's ultimately developed. Be very careful on the cost share, how that's accounted for. Um, You want to make sure that however they're asking you to account for any particular cost share that you're able to do it that way. Um, You always need to keep in mind that the other rules still apply. Procurement integrity still applies, False Claims Act, fraud, all of those things still apply. Um, And you need to remember that as you look at the agreement, gifts and gratuities, everything like that applies. And I would also say when you're negotiating with a consortium, remember that's just a commercial agreement. There is no required flow down except one particular comptroller general clause if it's $5 million or more. Uh, There's nothing that they must flow down to you, so you're free to negotiate. Now, the consortium may have the upper hand, right? They may have more negotiating power in terms of what to put in, but be really thoughtful about what you agree to. Yeah, and and that's, I mean, to me, the biggest thing you talked about, those statutes still apply, all the procurement integrity, Civil False Claims Act, all that stuff still applies. You know, the OTA doesn't weigh, I mean, you're, you're looking at FAR procedures and, and certain and CAS, things yes. and CAS. The big, that's a big Pena. deal. And yes. t- yeah, but, but those other things, that's important uh, for people to remember. And not just at the time of, you know, entering into the agreement, but throughout the entire process. Is that fair to say? Oh, that's definitely fair to say. I mean, you know, it doesn't, like export controls, you can't, you're not suddenly exempt from export controls and not sharing, you know, your information with foreigners in the, inappropriate situation. So all of those laws still apply, but that agreement is also really, really important. You just have to remember that if you want to be able to terminate it, you have to add that clause to it. So think of it in terms of not anything you've ever done like with the government before. Think of it really more in time in terms of a commercial contract. Right. So you, you've got to understand everything you need and have a checklist, really, right? Right. Limit yeah. your liability. I mean, yeah. that's one thing that's most important. Is... And protect your intellectual property. Yep. Right. Yeah. Hey, Angela, we're already up on the first break. Um, when we come back, you know, OTAs, uh, you know, technology companies, the commercial market, a lot of this is about gaining access to capabilities that the government hasn't had access to before. So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about that and why companies don't do business with the federal government. That's sort of one of the reasons OTAs are around. My guest today is Angela Stiles. She's a partner at Bracewell LLP. And you, I'm Roger Waldron. You are listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. My guest today is Angela Stiles. Angela is a partner at Bracewell. Uh, we're talking OTAs, 2018, the year of the OTA. Um, and, but also, Angela, it was the year, well, part of the discussion around OTAs is how do we get lots of conversations about why people don't do business with the federal government? You know, how do we get them to do business? All that. Um, and so I'm just going to open-endedly say your thoughts Sure. And we'll see where we go. <laughs> uh, I think the Department of Defense really started to realize over time that, and a lot of the defense contractors too, that there was terrific technology out there 
that would help them modernize legacy systems and weapons, and they weren't able to get access to it. And they started to really wonder why and how do we, which I think has evolved into this greater use of OTAs. It doesn't necessarily at this point solve the full problem because there's a lot of companies, big and small, companies that provide commercial products and small technology companies that are really cutting edge technology, if you will, that actually hire me to not do business with the government to make sure in every possible way that they are not a prime contractor and they are not a subcontractor and that they never accept any potential government bar flow downs in any contract. They don't want to be stuck in the middle of an intellectual property dispute, having to comply with the Office of Federal Contract Compliance requirements, um, having to um, be worried about a supply chain issue. They want nothing to do with the cyber requirements, right? They want nothing to do with the requirements that would flow to them as a prime contractor or a subcontractor because they consider it to be of great risk to their company. So, and, and you advise them to, how to, to not be government contractors, but to still do business with the federal government? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no, no, not really. Okay, I'm just no. Um, <laughs> it's pretty hard to get around that's the rules. That's true, right? I'll put it um, that way. But yeah, so, but at the same time, that just. That's the conundrum or, you know, the challenge, you know, and you were a former OFPP administrator. Beyond OTAs, what should the government be thinking about in this? I mean, you know, we're talking about the pace of technological advancement is just, you know, increases daily, right? New capabilities are out there and they're driven by the commercial marketplace. That's right. And it's a huge problem. I mean, it is just a huge problem because on the one hand, you want to do everything possible to protect, protect the government um, from a cyber perspective, from a spying perspective, from a safety perspective, all kind of supply chain issues that are really critically important to all of our agencies, not just the Department of Defense. And so you put more and more onerous clauses and requirements because you have to, right? But on the other hand, all of those onerous clauses and requirements, um, whether they're social policy um, whether they're domestic preferences or whether they're kind of cyber safety security, um, mean that this whole set of companies over here don't want to do business. And so, you know, maybe you can say in an extreme they went to OTAs and said, well, we'll just take away all the right. rules to get access to that. But it's in direct conflict with the fact that most of the time we're looking for companies that are able to provide us products, services with all of the protections you know, from safety to spying to everything right. else, right? And so there's a real conflict here. How do you access that marketplace that you want, but also protect the government and the taxpayers and our agencies in all the ways that you want to as well? And there is not a good answer. I mean, there is really not a good answer yeah. in between those two. It's, yeah, and, uh, and just to continue on that, he, it seems to me, I'm interested in your thoughts, that in particularly the supply chain risk and the cyber issue, whether you see it on the Hill, um, you know, with some proposed legislation up there around creating a whole framework for deciding whether the, you can do business with the government or not if you're a private entity, um, you know, all constant, you know, discussions about China and its spying and the cyber risk there. This isn't going to go away, this tension, right? I mean, in fact, it might get even stronger, right? Oh, right? I think it's going to get – I mean, in the, in the prohibition on, comp, you know, like Huawei, 
ZTE, all those type of things. I think that's right. And, and what you're going to find is a lot of these cutting edge technology companies are going to have their programmers in Russia. I mean, they're going to, you know, they're going to have interactions with China and that isn't working. So the companies they want to reach for the new technology are companies that are much more international, that use people that, you know, have different skill sets from all over the world. And you just come in direct conflict with what we're trying to do. And there's that 24 hour, you know, if you have people all around the world working on a project, you can work on it 24 hours a day, right? That's That's part of it too, right? But that is the way... Um, these companies get things done, you know, and some of it's it's cheaper to hire them, you know, in India or Russia or wherever. Sometimes they're just better, right? So how how I, I get back to the issues? Uh, so is is there any way to reconcile this? It's it seems to me you know, that that risk, you know, to our national defense is real. Yeah. At the same time, the market it's driving you know, certain things a certain way or just even that the idea of collective development across the globe. Um, Is there any, you know? Well, I think you do have to kind of slice and dice it potentially differently. I mean, I know that in the last defense authorization, we kind of moved to a separation, if you will, of products and, and services, commercial products and services a little more. I think, you know, the greatest risk that we're facing isn't going to be safety, you know, it's not going to, you know, you can fairly easily identify if the product you're getting to eject from a plane isn't going to work or doesn't have the right parts in it more than you can kind of the cyber security spying kind of things. And so in some ways you need technology to have a different look. Like you don't need those requirements to apply to products that aren't technology products, right? If you're buying pens and papers or oil changes, you don't need all of those to apply to it. And we're not quite there at kind of parts. We think of commercial product as a phone, right? But that's technology. Mm -hmm. And so we do have to start, I think, to figuring out how to parse that over to one side, deal with the OTAs. Like you do have to at least have some thought before you start into a follow-on production about, well, wait a second, we didn't have any of these requirements. We don't know if this software is developed in Russia because we had no requirements in the OTA to take a look at that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Sort of shift gears a little bit. It's the same, same, same topic about why people don't do business with the government, but a different angle to it. Is time to market speed something – that you see, you know, how long it takes to actually realize the business in the federal context versus in, in the commercial world that is also something that people say, well, I got I, you really, it's going to take me, you know, a year to potentially get a contract kind of thing. Is that? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the larger companies, the, the federal government's knocking on their door and saying, no, we want to buy directly from you. And they're saying, no, we don't want you to do that. You know, yeah. Um, we, we never want to do directly business with you. We, we'd like to be third tier or so somewhere down the line. Um, so, but I would say that's true for um, some of the smaller companies. Yeah. Well, Angela, we're already up on the next break. Um, when we come back, we'll continue this discussion. But I do want to also talk to you about where there are like technology transfer, the opportunities there for, I know it's an area you're very focused on. Um, for companies and working with the government, right, and some of the labs and that sort yes. of thing. So my guest today is Angela Stiles. She's a partner at Bracewell LLP. And I'm Roger Waldron. You are listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. My guest today is Angela Stiles. She's a partner at Bracewell LLP. And we've been talking OTA's uh, access to the access to the federal market and the federal government's access to commercial firms. And I know there's a fascinating area, uh, you know, with regard to technology transfer um, that actually provides opportunities for private sector uh, companies to you know develop product and. Um, leverage capabilities and that sort of thing. And uh, Angela, tell us about that. Absolutely. So kind of this unknown gem, if you will, in our federal government are the national labs. And so they're there um, to do basic science research that wouldn't be done in other places, but also bring technology to the marketplace to be commercialized. And it's really a tremendous opportunity for companies that are looking for new technology, looking to advance their technology looking to test their technology. Uh, The national labs have a lot of patents from Sandia to Argonne to any of the labs have all these patents. They're available on this joint patent website that they very recently came out with at the Department of Energy. They pulled all the labs together. Um, They're available for licensing. And so there's all these different technologies that are nascent, if you will, um, ripe for true development and commercialization that are just up and available for you to use, to license, um, for you to work with a lab through a cooperative research and development agreement, or for you to even go in and test a technology that you want to use. So the labs have all these incredible machines and processing from exascale computers to advanced proton sources. Even the pharmaceuticals go in and look at the inner workings of uh, their pharmaceuticals before they test them to see what they look like, uh, you know, in a different scientific environment than they can have anywhere else in the world. And so um, it's just this incredible unused opportunity. I just don't think people realize that the patents are available, that the labs are just waiting there to work with private companies in order to bring these things to commercialization through creatives or that you can take what you have. If you have some great battery technology, take it to the labs, work with them, test it. You get to keep your intellectual property. They're really there um, to help and move that commercialization forward. And it's it's really nice to see there's a new director of commercialization at the Department of Energy. And they're out there really pushing this. They're saying, hey, come to this place. Come to our national labs. Bring your technology. We'll bring ours. And we'll work together to make sure that the United States really stays on the forefront of technology. And so, and so from a company's perspective, this sounds like almost too good to be true a little bit. But so when you – the expectations on the government's parts when a company comes and does a license and that sort of thing, it really is – the goal is really to promote technological development. That's right. right. The you know? goal is really to take what they've done in basic science that they've moved closer. So let's say it's a battery cell and you've only gotten it to a particular size at the labs. They want to know if it can be mass-produced. Can you make this commercially? Can you move forward with this? And in each area – um, of of science, of technology, of computing. They have patents that have gotten to a certain point that they're really just waiting for companies to take on and push forward. I, so this is fascinating to me that there there's this resource out there that I don't think enough people know about. I really don't think. I mean, you think about it. People think of the Department of Energy, right? You think of yeah. oil wells and wind or something like that. But actually, the best part of the Department of Energy are the national labs. Yeah, 
So if, if I'm accompanying, do you just go to the website and how do you approach them? So you go, there's a really good website. You can go to any of the individual labs and do some research on what they're doing. You figure out where what you want to do, whether you're an investor, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a small business or even a large business, go to your research. There's a joint website, um, but you can also go to the individual labs and see what they're doing and see how it might fit with what you're doing. These guys are pretty open. I mean, most of them are run by commercial companies and nonprofits and universities. So when you call the lab, you're not actually calling the government. Um, you're calling an entity that's running the lab for the government. And they're pretty open to having discussions and having you in and talking about what they can do and what you can do. And then let's say you've, you're a company who's got, gotten into this and you've you know, licensed a patent or looking at some technological capability. How does that you know, sort of relationship continue? Is the government just looking for like up, updates as to how you're doing or? It can uh, depend on where you are in the process, right? Okay. It could be as simple as just licensing, right? You could right. just be paying them a fee for the particular technology. And or you do whatever you do. It, right. and you can do whatever you want to do with it. You can just go in there and say, can you test this for me? You have testing facilities um, that I don't and mm. just get the work product back and they keep nothing in terms of intellectual property. Wow. Yeah, I think this, this sounds like something that people need to talk more about. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's so critical to the future of keeping technology in the United States and innovation in the United States that we recognize how important it is for the government itself to invest in further development of basic science, but also to take that technology and transfer it to the private sector so that we get it out there and running in ways that companies can't invest in R&D. You know, we don't have no. Bell Labs anymore. We don't have the companies that really are are, are um, investing their own shareholders' dollars, if you will, in that basic research that needs to happen, but our labs are. Uh, and, and do these labs, do they have any relationship to universities as well? Many of them do. Um, I work with Argonne a lot. University mm-hmm. of Chicago runs Argonne. Um, Los Alamos is run by a coalition of Battelle, um, Texas A&M University, and okay. University of California. So there's a great deal of involvement from um, universities across the states. Is this one of those, you know, it's a, you know, it sounds like it's an un, you know, untold sort of a success story, right, that's out there. Do you, do you, it seems to me when you, when you describe this, it's, 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 it's that deal. We seem to underestimate what we, what, what's right in front of us and the capa- or overlook the capabilities that I have or both. I think Any that's thought? right. I mean, that's, that's why I like to talk about it. And that's why I like to work with companies in this space is because I, I just don't think people have talked about this. They get a little scared, right? It sounds right. like science. You know, if I want to talk about neutrinos, what's that? Or, you know, dark space or whatever. Right, right. Um, it's a little scary. But really, the more we make it understandable – um, the more I think we can continue to develop great things here in the U.S. Right. I think, but I think part of that too is like not just the science, and I'm not the science guy. <laughs> Trust me, my kids will tell me that. Um, but uh, just the also the idea of like you know breaking down the myths about in this case coming to the government and you know to access the resources. Right. It's okay. Right. It is. And it's much easier. It's not like you're going to knock on the Department of Defense's door. Right. I mean, these are pretty open entities that are run by universities and that are run by nonprofits and that are run by private sector companies like a Honeywell, um, which runs Sandia. Um, So even the weapons labs that are largely Department of Defense labs shared a little bit with Department of Energy as well. Even those have the same patents, technology, things like that out there. And the door really is open. I mean, the door is open because they're 
there are commercial sector companies that are running them. They know what it takes. Right. And so you would, you know, you could start by, you know, the research using the old Google machine, going looking at Department of Energy yes. and their website. Okay. Yeah, I would just start with National Labs or, okay. I mean, it's, there's a wealth of information out there and there's a joint website um, on the DOE website that you can find that has all the patents and it even has information on how to access different labs as well. Right. And the, do you have any thoughts on the nature of the agreement beyond like, you know, you know, licensing agreement, any thoughts on the nature of the agreements that people sign? Is, is it mm-hmm. sort of like an OTA? It's pretty open-ended what you figured out Most to be? Most of them are cooperative research and yeah. development agreements um, that they work on with the labs. Um, there uh, are certainly subcontracts too. So you'll see a project like Exascale Computing, which is the next big, large computer that China's kind of developed ahead of us a little bit. So we're working on catching up in terms of computing power and how it's done. Um, those are subcontracts. Um, okay. So, you know, there's mm-hmm. there are also subcontracting opportunities with the labs that are um, pretty unique technology type subcontracts. Fascinating stuff, Angela. Fascinating. Um, but we're already up on the on the next break. When we come back, we'll we'll take a, a do a little potpourri around some of the other issues of 2018, including e-commerce. Um, my guest today is Angela Stiles. She is a partner at Bracewell LLP. I'm Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. My guest today is Angela Stiles. She's a partner at Bracewell LLP. Um, we've been talking te- a lot about technology process, like, you know, the National Labs uh, today. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing, big thing out there from 2018 are a couple different things, but focus on e-commerce. Um, you know, at the end of 2017, you saw the NDAA um uh, you know, being passed and signed, and, you know, then GSA, Section 846 e-commerce provision, GSA issued its report in March of 2018. There's another report due here in, a, in March of 2019, their market research sort of report, and there's been a series of industry days and a lot of conversation around it, and I just, Angela, I'm going to open it up and say, you know, what strikes you when you look at, you know, the year that was in that particular area? Well, I think the first thing that strikes me is how open GSA has been with industry about this. I like it. And I think they're leading the government in kind of this transparency and openness and interaction with the private sector and people who know how to do these things. And they do listen. I mean, they do seem to be listening to um, concerns and comments and uh, suggestions. And so I think that's very, very good progress on all fronts for the federal government and on all fronts really for federal procurement because you see the Department of Defense following suit, which is very interesting to watch GSA take the lead and the Department of Defense kind of follow suit, if you will, on the transparency piece of it. I mean, I guess it's yet to be seen how this is really going to work. Is this the right approach? Did Congress make the right decision in, in heading this direction? There's obviously a high level of frustration about how hard it is for the federal government um, to easily purchase commercial products, commercial off the shelf, the prices that they pay. And I think it's still really yet to be seen. Is is this the right way to go? How high should the micro-purchase threshold be? Is this going to work? Are there better alternatives to access that commercial marketplace? Yeah. You know, on the on the I couldn't agree with you more on the transparency piece. I think GSA and OMB, because they're part of that team too, Matthew Blum, 
Um, been at every meeting. Um, you know, they, they have been very transparent and very willing to listen. Um, they've had lots of different conversations with all the stakeholders. Um, and they're st- and the industry day back in December of uh, 2018 was an example of that. They, you know, they got so much interest in it that they had to shift it from a GSA auditorium to a Department of Interior auditorium to hold more people. Um, that just sort of reflect their willingness to, you know, get as many people in the room as they possibly could to have the conversation. So I appreciate that. One of the things I, 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 I want to get your thoughts on. So yeah, the report, the next report is due in March. Um, one of the things I think is that I think would be beneficial as part of that is for GSA to put something out there and give people an opportunity. I mean, you have the opportunity to provide them feedback regardless of whether they want, want it or not. But just the idea, here's our report. Please provide us your feedback. I know they're going to provide it to the Hill and everybody else, and they're going to be giving feedback. But you're sort of acknowledging the idea that, hey, give us your thoughts on what we found. Did we get it right? Did we? Do you see them potentially doing that? I think they will. I, I think that's, I, from my perspective, it seems to be clearly the trend. And it's a slower process um, in some ways, I think. But that certainly seems to be the direction they're heading. It would be a change of course if they don't. Yeah. Um, and then along those lines, I know one of the one of the things that's going on out there that um, uh, it seems to be interesting is their RFI that was issued in uh, December as well, or leading up to, excuse me, the uh, the industry day that they had, um, is focused on you know, one, they, GSA identified three different models, e-procurement, which is uh, sort of like business software that can go out and, you know, you know, identify product for you to buy that is compliant or the price and that sort of thing. E-commerce, which is sites that sell their own stuff, right? And then e-marketplace, which is the marketplace with different buyers, I mean suppliers posting their product, and you you choose like a catalog. So, uh, But they've chosen to only pilot uh, or do a proof of concept with the e-marketplace. Um, I think that's something that I know you, you would, folks would like to see a broader uh, proof of concept done. I just wondered if you have any thoughts in that area. Well, it, it seems to me that they should be testing different things out. I mean, it, you know, they knew when they took this on that they were going to have to walk and, you know, chew gum at the same time. And I know that part of it is that they have a whole lot of activities going on at GSA. I mean, they've essentially taken over OPM. There's a lot going on. But this seems to be a pretty important pilot where you would want to not just pilot one, right? You would never do that with a weapon system. You wouldn't You wouldn't just say, oh, here's one. You actually look at, you know, multiple options and multiple ways of doing something. So I would think it would be very important to pilot more than one because that would seem to be that that's just the chosen one then, right? I mean, that seems to create a problem from the start that you've already picked what you want if that's the only thing that you're piloting, even if you had three options out there. Yeah. Um. And another thing, I just wondered if you have thoughts on this. Just there are, I mean, this is a worthy effort. I mean, you got to look at how we can buy. We as a government can buy faster, smarter, that sort of thing. Do you see what do you see as any kind of lessons learned from what the commercial market is doing that might translate? You know, and the one I wanted to ask you about is data. Um, you know that we everywhere I go and I talk to government folks, they it's about the data. And I think one of the things that that 
the eMarketplace does really well is capture all that data. Uh, is there, you know, we can, what can the government learn from that? Right. Well, the problem is, is that the commercial marketplace, when it gets data, knows how to slice and dice it and then use data, right? What we've seen with the federal government is they ask for data. A lot of times it's not usable data, or even if it is usable data, that they have no idea how to slice and dice it. I mean, I think you've seen that, you know, before at GSA. We've seen it at other federal agencies. And so I just think you have to be really cautious in terms of the level of sophistication that the government's going to be able to do that versus what you see um, commercial companies able to do. Right. So we don't have a lot of time. Um, another area, you know, just – and I think it's more, a, a, for me, it's, it's a, the legal question of multiple word contracts versus single word contracts and the whole cloud initiative at DOD and the decision to do a single award, you know, when the statute created preferences for multiple awards and that sort of, you know, thought process. Um, do you have any thoughts on that or any? Well, I mean, I'm interested to see if this is the path that DOD continues on. I mean, it's an, it's an agency that has always known that they need a second choice, right? You have a national defense industrial base, and they've always known that you need backups for planes and weapons and things like that. So I'm, I haven't been real sure why, you know, there's been a different approach here. Um, and I'm not sure that this will continue in other areas or not. I mean, I, I don't know why we would shift away from um, needing competition, needing a second source or something. I realize it's not exactly the same, yeah, yeah. but I think conceptually, if there's any department that understands that, it's probably the Department of Defense. And so I don't want them to give up kind of a fundamental for um, the, for ease, right? It, it's not a necessity. I think it's been more for ease of contracting, ease of administration. And is that going to continue? Is is ease of contracting and administration going to take precedence over making sure we have a backup? Right. The redundancy, security, all those kind yeah. of things. We're getting the right balance there. Angela, I wish we had more time. I really do. I do so too. you'll have to come fun. back. I yeah. will. Thank Absolutely. you. Uh, I want to thank my guest today, Angela Stiles. She's a partner at Bracewell LLP. Uh, I am Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. 
And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.